Welcome to The Emily Osmond Show. I'm your host, Emily Osmond, an online marketing educator, leader of an incredible global community of female entrepreneurs and a content creator based in Melbourne, Australia. This show is designed to bring you practical strategies and candid real stories of entrepreneurs to help you make marketing, mindset and money your superpowers. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm speaking with an incredible woman. She is Kara Peak, a Yaru Bunaba woman, lawyer, social innovator, and entrepreneur who's committed to fostering access and opportunity for Indigenous communities. Kara is chairperson of Nambabura Yaru, which is one of the leading Aboriginal organisations in post-native title determination delivery She's worked in regional communities in Australia, Canada, and America, and she's the executive chairperson and founder of Saltwater Country, which is a non-profit focused on providing diverse and inclusive training, employment, and recreational opportunities for Aboriginal people in the Kimberley region, which has one of the highest rates of youth suicide in the world. In 2019, Cara was awarded the Churchill Fellowship to improve the social, emotional and economic well-being of Indigenous Australian people. And earlier this year, Cara won the 2020 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award for Western Australia. In this episode, Cara takes us behind the scenes of her entrepreneurial journey, the flow on effects of intergenerational trauma, the difference between communication and engagement, and her tips for how we can foster greater engagement between our small businesses and our local communities. Representing our audience segments, including people of colour in our brand. We also discuss ethics, fragility and accountability as business owners and what culturally intelligent communication is and how we can cultivate it. I learned a lot from this conversation and I'm sure you will too. Be sure to screenshot while you're listening and tag me on Instagram at Emily Osmond. I would love to see. Now, let's get into this episode. Alrighty. Well, first of all, Cara, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Oh, thank you for having me. I'd love to start off, like always, by getting to know you a little bit by asking what you might be listening to or watching or reading right now, if there's anything on your list. Yeah, well, I mean, there's always something on my list. I can't live without music, that's for sure. So um, at the moment, like, I'm a real contradiction in terms of my music taste. So I'm listening to a bit of country uh, folk with, like, Chris Stapleton. Broken Halos is, like, one of my favourite songs at the moment. Always throw a little dolly in there. But at the same time, I've taken on a bit of a renaissance with old-school R&B. So Warren G, Reckon FX, Genuine, like, that kind of thing, and we always throw in a little bit of homeschool hip hop as well. My three-year-old niece is consistently asking for Baker Boy, loves him to death, and um, but we'll get her onto a bit of Briggsy soon as well. So, yeah, it just depends. And I've always got a stack of books. Like I almost call it the stack of shame, you know, because like I just never find enough time to actually get through them. But I've just finished reading Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva from New York, who's a First Nations man from over there. 
And I'm in the midst of reading New Power by Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. That was recommended to me because a friend of mine from college was involved in the editing and development and review of that. So it's, it's a really good book. And anything you're watching right now? Don't watch a whole lot of TV, to be perfectly honest. I mean, everybody loves a good Netflix binge, but um, I tend to watch a bit more of the, you know, Four Corners and, and different shows like that just to kind of spark my brain, I suppose. Yeah, sounds good. Nice uh, nice options in there. So, Cara, for those that haven't heard of you before, haven't met you before, could you introduce yourself? Who are you and what exactly do you do? I feel this is going to be a long answer because you got so many amazing things. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question for sure. So first and foremost, I'm a Yaru Bunaba woman. So I am an Indigenous Australian woman from Broome and Fitzroy Crossing. Yaru are from Broome and Bunaba are from Fitzroy Crossing. That's our traditional country. I consider myself a social entrepreneur and innovator. I have always been an advocate and that manifests throughout my career. I started my career as a solicitor, but these days I focus on what really motivates me and gets me up in the morning is delivering genuine outcomes and impact for my people, starting obviously with Yaru Bunuba people, but other First Nations people domestically and globally, because I, I truly believe that the success of First Nations people is the success of everybody, including every other Australian. So... That's kind of what motivates me, you know, on a daily basis. Has that always been um, your focus? I know that you started out, you actually went to uh, Melbourne Uni. I was doing my background research and you lived, lived on res, <laughs> which uh, I also did, but at a different college. They were very fun years, those ones. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. So we're basically competitors. But yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the rival college. And you, you studied, went on to study law. You studied law there. Was that something that you would always, it was clear for you from a young age that that was what you wanted to do or where did that come from? I think a sense of um, advocacy, right and wrong, and the ability to kind of balance out the scales was something that was always innate with me and definitely in my family. And I saw the conduit for that was a law degree. And I also did a psychology degree, like as my arts major. And I started that when I was in high school. And then I went on to complete that at Melbourne Uni. And so, yeah, I suppose... I didn't expect to live on campus to be fortunate enough to do that. I'd actually started studying my degree. I was probably a year deep into my degree, uh, but traveling in and out. And I found that quite arduous. So a friend suggested that I, um, you know, I try and get into one of the res colleges. And I didn't even really think that that was a possibility for me. But then I did, I got in and yeah, I, I would say it was, was definitely the formative years in terms of, I was a relatively independent child as my mother would say anyway, but living at the college, at Res College definitely, because I lived at Ormond College and a sense of freedom and uh, flexibility and also, you know, lifelong friends have come out of that experience for sure. Like I'm, I'm still in touch with a huge amount of people that, I went to college with because I think you just spend so much time together that it's a real pressure cooker, but in a good way. And obviously all of those people have gone on to become successful professionals as well. So the networks are amazing as well as the parties that we had. I know, right? I look <laughs> back and I'm like, God, 
that was they were good days um yes. and it's quite a bubble at college because we both went to those colleges that were based around the campus of melbourne uni which is in carlton parkville and i don't know about you but we barely left it was just like it's very kind of that insular bubble thing every, you're doing everything with your college friends i found it quite a shock when i then moved out into a shared house and i'm like oh my god bills and <laughs> all these things i have to deal with where were you traveling in from where were you living at that um at that point? so i grew up in the southeastern suburbs of melbourne in a suburb called dandenong so it was probably i don't know i think it's like 30 or something k's out of town but you know i was riding public transport to get in and get to my classes and when you've got an 8 a.m constitutional law class with a lecturer with a completely monotone voice yeah doesn't really work so um (laughs) in order for me to you know, do well in my degree. I had to be more stimulated, more rested. I'm not sure if the parties were conducive to that, but definitely, yeah, the friendship groups, the kind of collegiate atmosphere, obviously, and um, kind of a team environment as well. You know, you could study together. You Sure, you, you played together and, and those types of things as well, but everybody was ultimately there for one reason, that was to be successful in their studies. Um, not that you'd be able to tell, given that half of them spent their lives in like pajamas and trackies and a rugby jumper, and barely made it to a physical class. I think I was a bit better at that because I had been to uni in one way or another for at least two years before that. Because when I started my degree in high school, so I was used to the travel. But yeah, it was it was interesting. Uh, there's definitely some interesting people there as well. Oh yeah, such such amazing people. So where did your entrepreneurialism start? Was that something that has always been, I guess, part of you, or was it something that evolved down the track? Where did that come from? You know, it's probably ingrained in me by my parents, purely by virtue of them them ensuring, particularly my mother, ensuring that I was an independent and capable individual, that I wasn't, and I'm still to this day not easily intimidated by much. So from a problem-solving, solutions-based perspective, that's kind of my mother's parenting style. And also understanding the level of opportunity and education that I've worked for or that I've earned and have been lucky to be afforded is something that not a lot of people get. So I can use that for the benefit, not only of myself, my career, et cetera, but also for other people. So um, I was never a little, my brother was the hustler as a child. That wasn't me. I was pretty straight laced, but I did get this kind of, and I still to this day get this almost innate feeling when something is wrong or something's not working properly and recognizing my ability to fix it. And I think that all the part that I can play in fixing it. So I think that's where the entrepreneurialism comes from. It actually also comes from the fact that my brain is not easily occupied and it's pretty much 24 seven switched on unless I'm unconscious. So, um, <laughs> so even when I've had day jobs, et cetera, like there's always been some kind of side hustle. It started with me. I had a bespoke jewelry and millinery label, probably because I grew up in Melbourne, loved the Melbourne cup and all those types of things, but more of the fashion that goes with it and fashion in general. So um, it definitely stemmed from there and that was, that was quite successful. But then I, and I still love designing, it's just I don't really find the time to do it. I think I might have to save it for my retirement. Yeah, so that's where the entrepreneurial in its physical form actually started. But I think I probably already had an entrepreneurial mindset from a very early age. 
What about your first business that you started? Was that with the with the millinery? What did you do after you finished your studies? Were you working somewhere? After I finished my studies, I, I finished my psychology degree at Melbourne when I was still in Melbourne. And then I finished my law degree at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And that was just an exchange program. I'd always wanted to do it. But true to form, when I got accepted, I didn't have the funds to actually do it. Through a couple of contacts, I was able to land some research work in Canada as well. So I went up to the Diavik Diamond Mine, which is owned by Rio Tinto at the time, and uh, did some community engagement work with the traditional owners, so the Indigenous people up there, in particular the Dog Rib Tribe. So that is where I kind of started my stakeholder engagement education, I suppose, to an extent, because I'd always been a relatively good communicator, I had to live in a cross-cultural environment where I grew up was so, and to this day is so multicultural, you know, there's pretty much somebody from every country in the world there. But when I went on to, after uni, I completed those, my studies, I did that work while I was studying to fund my way. Throughout my whole degree, I worked full-time anyway. And then I went on to, after I finished at UBC, I basically said to my contact in the company, well, let's stop there for a sec. I did go and snowboard for a season in Vail, Colorado, and just became a total snow bum. But it was interesting because I lived in Vail. I have still have some lifelong friends from there. It was an amazing time. But it was interesting, the preconceived concepts that uh, people that attend places like that think about the people that are working for them or working because I was essentially on a gap year I suppose in a way and some of the customers would get a little bit uh, cheekier is probably a polite way of putting it I would come back with a relatively eloquent response and they'd be quite surprised so it was a learning curve for them as well (laughs) Um, but I went on to um, during that um, couple of years after my degree I Finished my snow bum life. I thought perhaps I should put my studies to work. And I went on to do some stakeholder engagement and community liaison with the San Carlos Apache tribe in Arizona and a little bit with um, engaging with the White Mountain Apache as well and then came back to Australia. And my first probably kind of legal work was uh, as a research associate and then a judge's associate at the federal court in Melbourne. So um, hence the reason I'm, I'm not easily intimidated. I'm very respectful of those people that are in the upper echelons of our industries, but um, they're just people to me. So I just get on with the job. That's so cool. I love it. Cause it, yeah, I'm someone that's probably like, oh God, intimidate. But good to remember everyone's just a person really at the end of the day too. So 100%. And they're just as dorky and quirky as you and I are, um, and it just manifests at different times and in different ways. So um, I really enjoyed my time at the federal court. In fact, Justice, well, he's now retired, but at the time, Justice North, who I worked probably most closely with, I'm still in contact with. Anytime he's in Broome, he lets me know and we catch up and, and that type of thing. So definitely probably I've been quite lucky through these different experiences that lifelong contacts and friends and confidants have been established and are still relevant to this day. A lot of the work that you do now and have done is around that advancement of Indigenous people. What would like success look like to you if that was ultimately achieved? What would that look like? I think that that would result in 
Indigenous people having the exact same access and opportunity that everybody else has in this country and globally as well because I still engage globally. Uh, It would take a fair amount of injection of uh, time and capital to bring it up to par with the general population and I think that so the experience of being a quote-unquote Australian was actually universal because there is a huge disparity between Indigenous people in Australia and non-Indigenous people. And I'm sure there's, you know, there's other steps along that spectrum. But if you're looking at two opposite ends of the spectrum, those are, those are your markers. So it would be Indigenous people having equal social, emotional and economic well-being and independence afforded the access and opportunities to everything else that everybody else is and also having markedly better health outcomes. So when I'm talking about, you know, parity within the population, it's not just from an employment perspective or an education perspective. It's from the whole human being. So mental health, family circumstance, access to affordable housing, which is, you know, pretty much a human right and yet it doesn't exist for Indigenous people. So all of the things that non-Indigenous people, whether they recognise it or not, have the privilege of having, I, I believe that Indigenous people deserve that as well. Absolutely. And it's pretty shocking when um, we look at statistics, really, the hard cold statistics, and it's just so clear that we're nowhere near that parity. You do a lot of work in the Kimberley, Cara, and um, it's a place that has that really some of the highest suicide domestic violence rates in Australia and even around the world. Why do you think that is? What have you learned about that and why is that happening there? I believe and, in fact, studies will show you that the highest suicide rate in the world that we have is a symptom. It's not the reason it's not the cause um the cause is actually the intergenerational trauma that has not been addressed by our nation and you will find similar statistics in the San Carlos Apache tribe that I worked with with any colonized nation there are similar problems and similarly from a um, domestic violence substance abuse perspective there's a misconception out there that aboriginal people drink more than other people and all those types of things simply not true the data is not there Um, It's just that we tend to stand out more. We tend to, particularly in the north where it's so beautiful and warm, et cetera, we're outside. Non-Indigenous people tend to drink inside their homes, those types of things. The intergenerational trauma that people have suffered as a result of history, but that is also self-perpetuating. So imagine that your home has been taken away from you, your children have been taken away from you, purely because of the way they look, no other reason, and also an absolute disconnect between the people in power and their understanding of your way of life and your culture. And that is a relatively recent history. It's in living memory of our old people, the the massacres, the stolen generation, all of those things. I know old people that remember that and old people that lost family members as a result of that. And we need to remember that it's a very recent history because it was still occurring when I was born, and I was born in 1980. And arguably government policies have resulted in the taking of children to this very day. 
So you compound those things. Imagine a community with kids' toys everywhere and, and um, you know, kids' things and a love that is representative in the physical nature but not a, a child's laugh can't be heard for miles. You know, kids' tears, which, you know, go up and down depending on the spectrum of the child, can't be heard. And mothers and fathers, aunts, uncles, grandparents are left with what? You know, just imagine a world without children, essentially, and a sense of ownership and control and autonomy. So those things, albeit the grander population believe it to be ancient history, is still within the living memory of our people. And then having to deal with that, having to learn how to parent, having no access to culturally intelligent and relevant mental health services, particularly in the regions. For every time we try and establish something like that, more often than not, it is getting better, but more often than not, funding is stripped from it because it's not considered important. If there was any other industry, and I say the Indigenous people are an industry for Australia, if there was any other industry that performed as poorly from a service perspective, it wouldn't last and it wouldn't be allowed to do that. But if you look at the Closing the Gap report, there's a huge amount of non-Indigenous people providing quote-unquote services to Indigenous people and they're not achieving any outcomes. In fact, some of it's getting worse. And if that was the finance industry, it would result in, although the Banking Royal Commission is probably an indication, but, yeah, if it was any other industry, it would uh, be held to account a lot faster. But the value of Indigenous people for broader Australia, particularly from a systemic racism and system perspective, doesn't really stack up and so if you imagine that historical trauma people not being able to fit into the box that people want them to be in and then looking at your fellow family members your friends are suiciding you're going to a funeral every week literally how do you deal with the perpetual state of grief and then also try and live up to the expectations of broader society and have the stigmas and the stereotypes laid upon you. So this intergenerational trauma piece, if left unmanaged or et cetera, like, you know, with a lack of services and uh, mental health services, amongst other things, it will just snowball. And that's what's happened for a lot of people. It's quite hard to dig yourself out of that type of situation And it's not that there's not a a level of self-responsibility. Of course there is. But if you're not given the tools or access to the tools, if you are in abject poverty in a so-called first world nation, it's a long road. It's a lifelong journey for some people. Some people like me are quite lucky. I have been, as I said, worked for the opportunities but also had the right household and, and family history to enable me to do that. And I still get shaken up by the suicide rates, of course, and all those types of things because it's quite a close-knit community too. So it's the despair and the depression which is a result of the intergenerational trauma which then results in those high rates of self-medication which results in suicide rates and, and other things. So, yeah, it's a complex issue. It's not something that can't be worked on but has to be Indigenous-led, the response to all of those things. Because if the money that the government says that they're putting into it actually made it to the people that are capable of doing the work, yeah, I think we'd be in a different story. You're doing a lot of work for this, one being with the Saltwater Country, Inc. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that is, what that does? 
Sure. So Saltwater Country is a company limited by guarantee, so a non-profit that I founded with the support, of course, of other young Indigenous leaders in the Kimberley. It's built off the legacy of freedom afforded by the Aboriginal cowboy. So in in Australia, the cowboy was not a the Aboriginal cowboy was not a sign of conquering and and different things much um, as it was in the US with the cowboy defeating the so called Indian. Not that we tend to use that word anymore, but that's what it was at the time. In Australia, it's a sense of freedom. It's an ability to be on your country. It's an ability at the time, historically, was the one place where you could be relatively free. You were not as confined by segregation and those types of things that existed in this country. So it's quite an untold story is that Aboriginal people, Indigenous people played a huge role in the development of the pastoral industry in in this country and therefore the country as a whole. And there is an amazing, almost nostalgic feeling about that for Aboriginal people. And also many of us still are connected to the industry, still live and breathe it anyway, particularly obviously in remote areas. So I decided that after much engagement, family members involved in it, community members involved in the industry, and then the sports of rodeo and camp drafting that come out of that, that it would be the perfect conduit for change. Our broader community, they turn up. We run large-scale events and small community-free events and clinics and training programs as well. And we know that we've got a captive audience. And we also know that they love seeing people that look like them running it from top to bottom. And they even, it's quite funny, they're even quite proud that the majority of people running it are Indigenous women, supported, obviously, there's a couple of guys up there as well. But all throughout the organisation and the business, we run large-scale events, small community events, training clinics from a riding perspective, like horse riding, that type of thing. But then we also carve out elements. If you look at any large-scale event, it needs media, marketing, photography, etc. We have decided that through Saltwater Country, we will create a rite of passage for our people where they can learn any of those disciplines. We run it already. We can teach it. And if we don't have the technical skill, we'll partner with somebody that does so that our young people and old people can have an intergenerational exchange of information, which is important. And then they can also learn a skill set that's transferable. So the Kimberley, so Broome, big tourism place, one of our biggest industries. So we can teach people film, photography, sound, lighting, risk, logistics, stock management, hospitality, so tourism, hospitality, food and beverage, and provide them with free-form learning or accredited training with a partner, a training partner that they can then earn You know, it could be a casual job on their school holidays or uni holidays. It could end up being a career for them and they could transfer into local industries like agribusiness, hospitality, tourism, etc. And more importantly, enable them to have a place that's run by people like them where they can shine in their discipline and their interest area and then they can go on to achieve after that. And um, I think with mental health, it's that sense of 
having that purpose, a sense of connection as well, a sense of meaning and perhaps that sense of a future that maybe has a little bit more certainty or a little bit more possibility and positivity to it as well. Is that what you're experiencing and seeing? Absolutely. And um, I had a, a, well, he was seven at the time, um, a young kid come up to me who was originally from Halls Creek, came up to me at an event and just waited until I was finished doing what I was doing and, and then said, oh, miss, I just want to thank you for doing this. We don't have things like this. And I just wanted to say thank you. I ha- I've had a lot of fun. He was there with his family and... Um, I think that on those really tough days when you're running around crazy trying to organise things and whatnot or or speaking to funders and trying to get them to support and, and those types of things, it, it's moments like that. What he said resonated with me in a stressful moment where, okay, yep, no, thanks for the reminder. That's why I'm doing this. That's why we are doing this. And we also had, um, I've had last year we had a really big year and a couple of the very quietly spoken Aboriginal stock men um, that uh, that I know here, a couple obviously I'm related to, but came up and shook my hand and just said, thanks, sis, I can't believe we are doing this. And it's the we that's the most powerful thing in that moment because it's a sense of ownership, recognition, self-determination and autonomy in the process that they understand that the role that they play in their contribution as much as the collective success and what that looks like. And um, time and time again, studies have shown that if the response that you're creating or the service that you're creating is people-centred, place-based, culturally and regionally relevant, you will not only get the buy-in but you will get the outcomes that will be transformative for your target cohort or target market which in our case is primarily indigenous people in rural remote and regional areas we have started in the Kimberley but we hope upon invitation that we can expand in other places and we've been invited to do so it's just a matter of getting the funds together to actually do it so it sounds as though this is kind of what you're saying too in terms of perhaps what organizations or government are doing at the minute which isn't really working or isn't really you know the way it it really should be run um the fact that i love how you explain communication and engagement are two very different components of human interaction and often mistaken as interchangeable but engagement is very very different by virtue of it requiring participants to listen and contribute in a meaningful way and it sounds as though that's what the stockmen were were saying to you as well like this is something that we're doing together which is why it, it is so powerful could you touch on that? And then I guess also for those listening and many uh, sole traders, small business owners, is there a way that you might even suggest or that we can be better at doing this ourselves instead of the communication, that engagement side as, as well or instead of? So for me, engagement, like, like you've just said there, is it's a two-way street and you can't be guaranteed about the response. But you need the only thing that you can control is your response and the way that you deal with any situation. So you need to have enough emotional intelligence as well as cultural intelligence for you to deal with the context and the community within which you find yourself. And in doing so, like, I mean, it's an old cliche, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. 
listen more than you talk like and also actively listen because you can't you're not truly engaging or listening if you are just thinking about what your response is going to be whilst the person is talking because then you're not really hearing them and from a small business perspective I find so I also run well myself and my business partner who's my sister we also run our own company and we've started from nothing there so the name of the company is the cultural intelligence project and we run at the moment it's seven different platforms um, in terms of the way into engaging properly with indigenous people but a lot of the things that we do are transferable to um, people of color generally and other cultures in general like they don't have to be a person of color but there's definitely a mental construct that needs to be unpacked to better deliver to your community or sell to your customers or whatever it actually might be. And so from a, a small business perspective, what I often find with the businesses that we advise is that they haven't really thought about who their customer segment is, which is interesting because Ultimately, whether you're selling a product or advice or, you know, in terms of a service or whatever, who are you selling it to? Why are you selling it to them? And are your target market represented in the brand that you're putting forward? Because what I find at the moment in particular, and it's not just small businesses, it's very big ones as well, they've become quite comfortable in selling to a particular cohort of people, irrespective of what their cultural makeup is. And they haven't taken a step back. And maybe they've been quite lucky. Maybe they've been quite fortunate and have been able to sell their product relatively easy. Maybe it's something that people generally need. However, by and large, if people don't see themselves represented in your brand, they're not going to buy it. They'll go somewhere else. It doesn't have to be the whole person that's represented, but it needs to be a part. And so I would ask small businesses out there to really consider representing people of color in their brands have a look at your community australia is made up of everybody from across the world so have a consideration about where you do your business who's impacted by your business good or bad where you live and what you do in your own time your community because what you do in your community reflects on your business right and therefore who's sitting at your dinner table is it a diverse group of people and true intersectionality not just indigenous and non-indigenous but it could be any culture gender orientation whatever it is is there a representation there is there a representation of that in your workforce and if you've got a very small business but perhaps you're a sole trader or whatever I would, you know, think about what are your core values that you're not willing to waver on and stick to those guns because at any time that we've hit a, you know, a curveball in our in our business or even the non-profit, it is the, our integrity and our ethics that have always come back to support us and have ultimately seen us through whatever the hard patch might be because people know the work we do is good the way we do it is good and um, it is an embodied by a level of cultural and emotional intelligence so that um, the outcomes that we get are genuine and often long-lasting, albeit they may need to be reviewed occasionally. So if you're a business owner, a sole trader, you probably got a half-decent risk appetite anyway 
Um, <laughs> Probably a bit nobody, too big sometimes. <laughs> right? Nobody does this for kicks. Like it's way easier, way easier to have a nine to five job if you can be satisfied if with that. If you want to sleep well at night. <laughs> right. I'm not a person, unfortunately, that does either of those things, is A, satisfied by a nine-to-fiver or sleeps well at night. You know, you're already a trailblazer and an innovator if you are a sole trader, an entrepreneur, a small business owner. Uh, It comes with its challenges, but I would just ask that you try and apply a lens that also includes people unlike yourself and take that on board. And, you know, you can follow us on the Cultural Intelligence Project and, on Facebook and Twitter and all those types of things in our website if you want any insights around the types of things that we do, the types of projects that we're involved in because I think when people look at our website, they're actually, oh, wow, okay. So you've got we do consulting, we do event management, we do um, you know brand management and assessment. We obviously, Saltwater Country is a sporting endeavour, et cetera. So you can have your niche and which for us is um, cultural intelligence but it is an underlying core principle that applies to all of our deliverables and I think as well um, that us small business owners sole traders like it's our business we can make the decisions and we can do it really nimbly and I think sometimes this is something I'm definitely guilty of is that we sometimes think oh well the big businesses they know the, the right way to do things because they're like they've got all the people they've got all the resources like you know follow the lead of the big businesses but it's absolutely not the case and I think especially in this area they like you've kind of said like they've almost got away with it and I think a lot of us, like myself included, can kind of look to them and, and we take our lead from them. But it's, yeah, it's just definitely not the case that they are doing it the right way. So I think listen to other voices and also be kind of brave enough to do what we know in our own values is, is the right thing to do too. Absolutely. And if, if you're not doing that, um, you may have to deal with the fragility that you experience because I find that I'm never shy away from a difficult conversation like I'm more than happy I'm also more than happy to be proven wrong if that's the case like I don't mind but if you are not willing to put some skin in the game and get involved in this narrative particularly at this time that we in the world find ourselves you know you you have to be ready for people to hold you to account and you may have to check the immediate kind of adverse reaction that you have or fragility that you might feel like oh my god no that's not me that doesn't describe me but does your behavior and the things that you say actually reflect who you understand yourself to be as a person because there may be a disconnect there and definitely the corporates my gosh they have Australia in particular um, if you look at the very large companies that we have they were established all roughly around the same time a long time ago. So maybe like early 1900s, that type of time frame. And we have not had many, except say, if, you know, potentially your Atlassians or your Canva and people like that. We have not had many large scale billion dollar corporations developed in recent times. And to the level of embeddedness in our society, like the big four banks or the big supermarket chains and those types of things. So they've had no real innovation and competition except amongst themselves and nobody has held them to the account. And if nothing else, the consumer holds the power 
collectively in that space. And that's where you see the pressure around, you know, plastic shopping bags and whatever. It took way too long for my liking, but consumers at all levels of the supply chain have the power to make that change. And small business owners, entrepreneurs, you're built to innovate. Absolutely. You're agile enough. Hopefully your cash flow is good enough, <laughs> at the, particularly at the moment given what's going on. And I understand those dilemmas. But it enables you to do things differently, to do things in line with your core values and to know that there is a customer base out there for you. Like it's not that there isn't. There's always a customer base out there. It's just about how you connect and communicate with them. And don't try and make yourself like the corporates because the corporates have that game. They've got that piece of the pie. People are used to buying from them. Even if they don't have brand loyalty, they still know who the big players are. So why go up against somebody like that when you, in your brain, in your, you know, your back pocket, you have the skill sets to shake that up? Absolutely. Cara, you, you've mentioned cultural intelligence and that's one of the, like really the work you do revolves around it. It's one of your core uh, skills as well, culturally intelligent communication. Can you explain what that is and what that looks like as well? Culturally intelligent communication essentially enables people to unpack the mindsets or the baggage that you walk into a room with that you may not know you actually possess. Each and every one of us comes from a different cultural background, whether it be the country that we're from, the religion that we may or may not have, um, our family dynamic and the way that that operates or the way that we've been taught that that operates, our work culture, each company or firm or whatever has a particular way of doing things, the sporting culture that we have here in Australia or even your local club your local mother's group, whatever it might be, has a different culture, a different way of being, systems and beliefs that underpin what they do on a daily basis. And any one individual walks into a room with all of those layers and doesn't necessarily know that they do. Of course, me as an Indigenous person, also with the um, Chinese grandfather and, you know, other things, I understand those elements that come in with me but as my cultural experience has progressed along my life different things have influenced me and I need to be aware of that when I'm engaging with people and I also need to be aware that they don't have the same experience so their decision making process is going to be different and the way they approach or react to a situation is going to be different And so cultural intelligence project and the concept of cultural intelligence really assist in unpacking those mindsets, understanding the other, whoever that other may be, and then working to bring those mindsets together for a mutually beneficial outcome. And when we do training and things like that, people are surprised about the things that influence the decision-making process. And once you're kind of in that space, of true cultural intelligence it's beyond awareness it's beyond inclusion it's beyond all of those things when you're at that space can be quite frustrating because you can understand to an extent everybody's point of view which is kind of irritating sometimes but what you can do is then 
take a much more empathetic, you still may not agree, like it's not about agreeing about everything, but you can take an empathetic viewpoint and understand to a degree how somebody got to where they landed and then kind of guide the conversation for all parties, depending on who's in the room, to work through what whatever issue it might be, whatever project. It doesn't have to be something bad. It could be something good that you're all trying to achieve, but nobody can agree on how to do it, for example. And it, it helps a lot. The reason that we do it is to bridge the divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but it can also help in this very multicultural country that we live in from a personal relationships perspective, business, social, whatever it might be. So um, it's like it's work for people and people don't always like to work, but um, it is extremely rewarding when you get on the other side or even when you're on the journey. Like it's a lifelong journey, so there will be moments when it works, there will be moments when it doesn't work. But then when, if it doesn't work, then you can work through it. What are some ways that people can do that work or start that work? You know, self-education obviously is always a good start. Um, there are a number of books and whatnot out there about the concepts. But from a First Nations Australian's perspective or Indigenous Australians, I would, if I was a person out there listening to this, I would seek out information about our history as a country. I would also seek out information about whose traditional country I actually live on or work on and start to be patient because um, some First Nations and Indigenous groups are cautious about sharing their information because it has been appropriated day in and day out. But eventually, if you listen more than you talk, you will learn a lot and um, you can then start your journey on cultural intelligence in the Australian context. But the other thing that you can do if you're an organisation or if you, um, you know, kind of are a self-educator, for want of a better term, you can get organisations like ours into yours and we can train you face-to-face. We're about to launch the Cultural IQ, which is an online training platform that you can take yourself through, self-paced, with live webinars and calls and and scalable events and things like that and at the moment for as far as we've seen there's nothing else on the market like it we can bring in subject matter experts so if you have particular or if an organization has particular questions perhaps around cultural safety in the health services industry or whatever it might be those experts can be brought in to answer those questions and um, But what it does is it prepares your mindset to then absorb and take in information from other people and other cultures. It comes with a First Nations and Indigenous lens. But what we've found is, because this is something that we have developed after years of de- delivering it face-to-face, what we have found is once people start to understand the Indigenous mindset a bit better and the relations, there's actually more similarities than differences It's just people haven't taken the time to consider them. Even our family relationships and things are very similar to Asian cultures in terms of the massive extended family and the interrelations that exist in that. So self-education is key. Get involved in your community. Through our course, we also, um, you've got take-home tasks and all different things. So you're you're kind of held accountable 
to actually implement what you're learning, come back with the feedback, etc. Good, bad or ugly, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter. It's about what the response was or what types of conversations you had around your dinner table or in the locker room or whatever it might be. So, oh, that sounds amazing, yeah. Cara. I'll, um, I'll add the links. Is it launched yet? It's not quite launched? Uh, cultural IQ is not launched yet, but um, you can find a little bit of information on the Cultural Intelligence Project, which is kind of like the mothership of all of our platforms and brands, and um, you can connect into the different things we do through that. You mentioned mindset as well, and someone someone from my community actually asked me this uh, question the other day. There's been, I guess, in, in different conversations, the notion, which I believe is pretty valid, around mindset and manifestation when white people perhaps talk about it. And it's it's just in that lens of privilege that you can you can kind of think and then you can create and have that thing. I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you, um, what what's your thoughts on that? Do you, is that something I guess that you believe to be something that people with white privilege can say? Oh, yeah, you can just manifest what you like, or is it something that in your culture it's it's something that is also a belief that's held? I think the way that uh, mindset and manifestation is communicated at the moment is a product of privilege for sure because in its simplest form, it doesn't acknowledge or unpack the myriad of barriers that people other than people that benefit from white privilege are actually facing. You could take uh, the Me Too movement, for example, the Me Too movement and the Me Too hashtag and those types of things was actually started by an African-American woman, an activist in the US. However, it got legs when white celebrities put their hands up, Me Too, Me Too, Me Too. Great. I'm not saying it's not a good cause, of course. Like the things that those women have been through are absolutely abhorrent and horrendous. But I question whether it would have got the traction it did or has and the power and the people it is enabled to topple from those echelons of power had it been only put forward by women of colour. Because women of colour, whether they're Indigenous or African or whatever, are the most marginalised people on this planet. So to say that you can manifest, I think that you can, as an individual, dedicate yourself to doing that. Um, I know that there's plenty of random ideas I've put out there that I have then, you know, achieved. But, you know, there's a huge amount of work that sits behind that. There's a huge amount of barriers for me and people like me that picture an Indigenous female entrepreneur living above the 26th parallel in this country, so not living in Melbourne or Sydney. The barriers to investment, to capital, to education I couldn't count how many times I've been A, the only woman at a board table or a high-level meeting or the, and in particular the only woman of colour or Indigenous woman even more so in those rooms. You know, lucky for me, I'm not easily intimidated. But to manifest and to mindset, it's very e- easy to have a positive mindset or a mindset shift If you're not facing abject poverty, if you don't have issues with food security and food literacy, if those types of things or transport barriers that then stop you from getting to school or being able to sit in a classroom and not have the only thing that you're thinking about 
is the fact that your stomach is rumbling and can other people hear that? If that's all you can think about, because that is the self-sustaining life requirement, how are you then able to manifest your destiny or, or shift your mindset away from that? And I'm not saying that's everybody's experience. I'm very blessed. I've never gone hungry. We definitely come from a family of eaters. I think that, you know, the way that it is communicated now is definitely, a, you know, a white privilege concept um, because as you can see what's happening in the world right now, these are not new issues. People have been trying to change them for years. It doesn't matter how much manifesting a black person does in jail or before they get to jail, it's not going to change. The outcome is not going to change. And deaths in custody in this country is a perfect example. A huge amount of women in jail are in jail for unpaid fines because they have had to choose between feeding their children and paying a fine, which could be something as stupid as their dog got out of the yard. You know, it doesn't even, it's not even something, you know, like a serious crime. Their dog got out of the yard, it was caught by rangers and they have to pay a fine in order to get it back, you know. So people are in jail for those types of things. So how do you manifest your way out of that? Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Cara, I've taken up way more of your time than I uh, meant to. So thank you so, so much. I do like to finish by asking perhaps something that you wish you knew before your entrepreneurial journey started. I've always been a person that is quite comfortable with the word no. I'm not a yes person. If I if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I say I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But one of the things that I probably, it still hits me hard, but I, it, I do have to remember it, is that when I hear a no, for me, it's just a no, not right now. Back in the day, it used to hit me harder because, you know, we're doing all these amazing projects and why wouldn't somebody want to buy into it? Why wouldn't they want to support it? Why don't they want to support our community? Now I have learned that the level and different types of communication that you obviously have to apply to any given situation, the agendas and that sit behind people's mindsets and, and decisions and no, more often than not, can be a good thing because it means that something else is around the corner that is better for you, for your circumstance and for what you're trying to achieve. So as much as I don't shy away from saying no, (laughs) I think I probably, it would have been good to know early on how often you're going to get a no from somebody else, but how often that can actually transform into something else. So, so important to remember. Well, Cara, thank you so much. What's the best place people can go to follow you, follow your work? The best place is to go to theculturalintelligenceproject.com, which you can link into all of um, our different platforms. Like I said, Cultural IQ is like it's a holding pattern right now. It's soon to launch. Other than that, it's uh, the Cultural Intelligence Project or Saltwater Country if you're solely interested in the nonprofit, Facebook, Twitter and Insta. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Cara. 
Thank you for listening to The Emily Osmond Show, brought to you by my Instagram freebies, which you'll find at emilyosmond.com forward slash free. So please take a few seconds to leave me a review, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, and be sure to take a screenshot of this podcast, upload it to your social media, and tag me at Emily Osmond so I can give you a shout out too. Until next time, remember connection over perfection. You've got this and we'll speak soon.